0: Hey guys, Jared Lopes here, host of the Dad Tired Podcast. Welcome back to A Parent's Guide to Apologetics. This is a five-week series where my friend Chris Hilkin walks us through what it looks like to lead our family well in the area of apologetics. This is week five of five, so if you haven't gone back and listened to the other four episodes, definitely recommend that you do that. We also have some homework and some worksheets and a list of recommended reads. If you go to dadtired.com forward slash homework, you can find all the details. Again, go to dadtired.com forward slash homework can find all the details for that. Hope you've enjoyed this series and that it's been helpful for you on your journey of becoming the spiritual leader of your home. Love you guys. Let's dive into week five.
1: Today we're talking about the argument that is often made against Christianity or against God in general. And it's affectionately known as the problem of evil. And it's stated like this: if there's a God. And this God has all these omni-characteristics. He's omnipresent, means he's in all places at once. He's omnipotent. He's omnipotent. He's he's all-powerful. He's omnibenevolent. He's all-loving God. He is omniscient. He knows all things, right? So if he knows all of this stuff, and he's all-powerful, and he's everywhere at once, then how do you explain evil in the world? If this were the case, wouldn't we expect that if God was able and willing that all evil would be done away with? Because if he can see everything, and he loves, which means he would want to do away with evil, and he has the power as an omnipotent being to do away with evil, then bingo! All evil should be gone. Therefore, if evil exists, then God does not exist. At first blush, this sounds like a great argument. And I think a lot of philosophers would say this is the biggest challenge to Christianity. What's cool is when you really jump into it, you find that the argument that's made that says it is logically inconsistent for God to exist while evil exists is actually just a really poor argument. In a recent debate that I was watching, this guy named Kevin Sharp, he was arguing in the, in the negation for God's non-existence. He was saying God doesn't exist, but here's what he wrote. He said, historically, he writes, he said, the problem of evil has been the nail in the coffin of the debate of whether God exists. And then he wrote this, You might have noticed I didn't use the problem of evil in my arguments here at all. That's because contemporary Christian philosophers of religion, to their great credit, have largely dismantled the problem of evil. He's a doctor of philosophy at Ohio State University, and he's, he was doing a, a debate publicly just recently. And so he basically concedes. He says, for a long time, we as atheists thought this was going to be the nail in the coffin for Christianity. And then as an atheist and atheist philosopher concludes, uh, to their credit, they've done away with this argument. So there's three different ways to respond to the problem of evil, as C.S. Lewis calls it, the great trilemma. Okay, three things. God is all powerful. God is all loving, yet evil exists. So what most atheists would say is one of those three things has to be canceled out in order to make any sense. There could be an all-powerful God who doesn't want to stop evil, therefore evil exists. There could be an all-loving God who's impotent, who can't stop evil, therefore evil would exist. But you can't have a God that's all-loving and all-powerful and have evil existing. It just, it's logically impossible. So the first argument is called the logical problem of evil, where someone would state it's logically incompatible for God to exist and for evil to exist. You make a flaw in logic when you say it, God exists and evil exists at the same time. This is what Kevin Sharp was writing about earlier when he said, modern philosophers have all but done away with this completely. And the majority of people would agree, there is no logical issue here. There is no, when um, you put it on a truth table or you put it in an argument format, it doesn't check out. It is not reasonable to say, if God exists, evil cannot exist. That's called the logical problem of evil. The other problem is what we call the evidential problem of evil, which is to say, well, we know it's not logically incompatible, but it's improbable that God has a good reason for allowing suffering. It's improbable that God has a good reason for allowing suffering. And since God doesn't have a good reason for allowing suffering, most likely God doesn't exist valid that is a completely reasonable response i think it's flawed i think that it doesn't align with the evidence but that makes a lot more sense than the logical problem the other one's the emotional problem which is to say i refuse to believe in a god who would allow this to happen this one isn't doesn't really jump into logic at all it's more of an it's an emotional response if there's a god who has the power to stop things and doesn't do it i refuse to believe in that god well, there's, you can't really debate with these people. You can't have a great conversation with these people because their argument isn't coming from a place of logic. And sometimes apologetics, at least in the traditional sense, can't be used in these scenarios. It's more about showing them the love of God and helping them understand these things. So what we have to do if someone says it is logically incompatible for God to exist and for evil to exist, is all we have to do is show that even in a world that that might not make sense to everyone, all we have to do is show that there's no logical incompatibility with the two things. So I would first ask someone, okay, why can't God and evil exist? And the argument comes quickly into a demonstration that most people jump then into, well, the main point of God existing would be to rid man of all pain and to give him ultimate pleasure. But what we see in scripture time and time again, over and over again, Nowhere will you find that God's primary aim is to take away pain and to bring ultimate nirvana to every person here on earth. Now, John 17 says that ultimate paradise is to know God forever, to be with him in eternity. But here on planet earth, the promises are the opposite. John sixteen thirty three: in this world, you will have trouble, Jesus states. Romans 5, 3 through 5. Not only this, but we exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance, proven character, and proven character gives us hope, and hope does not disappoint. 1 Peter 5, verse 10. In this world you will suffer for a little while, and the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 1 Peter 2, 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps of suffering. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though we are the outer man is decaying, yet the inner man is being renewed day by day. For these momentary light afflictions is producing in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at things that are not seen. For the things we see are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Genesis 50 verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about the present result to preserve many people alive. So, We see, even in Christian theology, you can really dismantle the idea that if God exists, there wouldn't be any evil by simply saying, one of the premises that the atheist constructs when they make this argument is to say, God, because I don't see a good reason to allow suffering, therefore there can't be any suffering. Again, this is all to say, none of this, even if that were true, this doesn't prove that a God doesn't exist. We don't know that, what if there's a God out there who loves evil and loves pain and loves torture and loves all these things we still wouldn't be make a good argument to say there is no god because there is evil we just might have gotten the character of god wrong but even if you say god is a loving god it's still not incompatible because what we're really saying isn't god and evil can't coexist what we're saying is i don't understand or i don't see a good reason why god and evil could exist well that's not the same thing as saying they're incompatible that's saying i don't see it I don't understand it. Let me pitch some ideas to you. The first one being, if the incommensurable good of mankind in God's economy is that the most amount of people would come to a knowledge of him and be saved, I think you can make a good case, biblically speaking, that God, while preserving the free will of mankind and not going against his character and nature, wants as many people to be saved as possible. So then what if it were the case that the let's say the knob or the dial of evil on planet earth is actually perfectly set for the most amount of people to come to saving faith in him. In other words, if there was no evil in the world, people might walk around constantly and go, why is there God? Who is God? What do we have need for God? We don't yearn for him. We don't desire his kingdom. We don't want him to come and save us. We don't see the need for sin. We don't see the problems of this world. We don't find ourselves in a non-utopian society. We don't desire heaven. We live in heaven. If there was no evil at all, we might actually create a situation in which the pursuit of God is completely null and void. No one would want to do it. And yet if God's desire is that the most amount of people would come to saving faith in him to turn from their sin and their wicked and evil ways and to be with him forever, then it would actually be evil of God to remove all evil in the world. Because we would walk around and go, I don't even care about the gospel message. I don't care about the Bible. I don't care about God. We don't need him. Because everyone is trying their best to be a good person and while we are innately sinful and we are born into our sin because of the fall and because of our nature, we don't want anything to do with God because, man, this life is awesome. I love the world and everything in it. Conversely, what if the dial of evil was set so high that all people did all the time was try to survive. We lived in almost like a post-apocalyptic world where we're walking around constantly. We're not able to gather or meet or to exalt one another or to exhort one another or to meet and to understand one another. We're, that we we can't even establish a church bodies because everyone's just constantly evil and doing evil things and everything in the world is fight or flight and everyone is survival the fittest and we've become primitive and primal in our practices. And evil was set so high that no one comes to saving faith in Jesus because all we're doing all the time is trying to survive and not get killed by the next person. And you're not able to establish any sort of faith community. And the Bible isn't able to be translated and carried on because evil is just completely unchecked. Now I want you to imagine the the sovereign loving God of this world who sets the dial of evil so perfectly that it actually reaps the most amount of people to come into saving faith with him that there's going to be hardship, there's going to be fallout, there's going to be brokenness. And, and and those, our God is not the author of sin. He cannot sin and God cannot, he is not a morally culpable agent in the same way that we are as people. Meaning if God desires, or if, if God takes someone's life, he takes their life, the same life that he gave them. And, and if he moves a soul from one position to another position, we hasn't really done anything evil there because he is the author and the giver and the sustainer and it is up to him when he is able to do whatever he wants to do in terms of that soul which he created and was born and made for him. So what if we have a God who then looks at this world, understands the perfect alignment of evil as it must be in order for the most amount of people to come to saving faith? The only way that the argument holds up is if you buy hook, line, and sinker the idea that God would want to take all pain away and he would have no reason It's logically incompatible that God would possibly have a reason for there to be evil and that he would stop it if he could. Well, then of course it would be incompatible, but no one really sees that. When you read scripture, we don't see any picture. And Jesus is the ultimate example. Jesus, if anyone should have been spared pain, who was a perfect person, who never did anything wrong, it was Jesus. And yet his life is marked by pain and tragedy and heartbreak and heartache and loss of loved ones, and betrayal, and rejection, and he was scraping by to live, right? He says the animals have a place to sleep, and yet the Son of Man can't even lay his head down somewhere, speaking of himself. He's born in a manger to a destitute family. He was in a reject town of Bethlehem. What good can come from Nazareth? So the people say as he gets older, we've got a God who really understands, but God... Jesus and the relationship with the Father that Jesus had was so was in such close communion that if we possibly said, well, if we're good people and when God has his will, people experience a life that is free from pain and tragedy and suffering, Which look at the life of Jesus. If that were true, we would expect the Savior to live a life free of suffering and pain and betrayal and hurt and rejection and grief. And yet Jesus's life was full of it. So the logical problem of evil also says, well, God could create any world he could possibly want to. The problem with that idea is that God actually has limits. And here's what I mean by limits. People always, they love this question, especially like in debates. They always ask me, well, if God is so powerful, can he make a rock so big that he can't pick it up? Or can God make a four-sided triangle or a married bachelor or a burrito so hot that he can't take a bite of it? It's like, they're kind of fun questions, but they're logically insane, right? To make a four-sided triangle is to make an error and a a psychotic error in what is rational. And our God is not an irrational God, so he can't do something irrational. He can't go against himself. So he's actually bound by certain things. So when we say that God is all-powerful, we also mean that his power, though, is limited to his character and his nature. God can't do anything outside of his nature. He can't. If God was able to, at any point, do something outside of his nature, then we all all shouldn't be super confident that God is going to save us, that he is going to forgive us, that he is going to love us. But the reason we are so sure of it, as Romans 8, 38 tells us, that, for I am convinced, Paul writes, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything in all creation can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because our God is always a God who is consistent with his character. So can God create a world of all autonomous robot beings? No. Well, how come? Because God has seen the supreme ethic of love as only being transmittable in a world where people can choose evil and can choose sin. And so God is not an irrational God. He wouldn't desire the ultimate ethic of love from his people and obedience, there would be no obedience if all you were was a robotic psychophant, and there would be no love if we didn't have a choice to unlove or a choice to rebel against. So God actually does have limits in what he can do and it's not because he's not all powerful, it's because he's consistent with his nature. He doesn't do irrational things, he doesn't make three-sided squares, he doesn't make married bachelors, he doesn't all of a sudden go, whoops, I didn't mean to just commit genocide against this race of people because of their skin color, he can't do that. He is a good and perfect loving God. And so this idea that he could create whatever world he wants to in any possible situation actually fails to understand the limits of God in based on his character. Now, again, it's so scary to say the word that God is limited, but he's limited in the best possible way. We know that God isn't just going to wake up tomorrow and go, you know what? Forget it. Instead of justice, I'm a God of injustice. All the evil will be unrepaid and all of the good things people do will never be rewarded. Sorry, I'm no longer a God of justice. No, the reason we sleep at night, the reason we're confident in our resurrection, we're confident in eternity is because God never changes his character. That's the, the beautiful idea of his immutability. He never changes or altars. Now, you can make a really great argument and say, well, I don't think that there are good reasons for there to be evil in the world, for sure. But that's not an argument that God doesn't exist. It means I need someone to make a good case for why there should be evil in the world. And and outside of the case you just made about incommensurable good and the amount of evil in the world, you also understand the chief end of man is not our happiness and our comfort, but the, the knowledge of God and his glorification also remember, biblically speaking, that we are in a state of rebellion against God, that this is not the world that God originally intended us for, for us to live in. It was to be perfect, in perfect union with him, but we chose to reject him. To also remember that God's view of eternity is so much bigger than just this life. The book of James says this life is just a vapor in the wind, right? It's like a sneeze, you know? In one inhalation and sneeze, it's like your whole life can be summed up. When we get to heaven, we've been there for three trillion years, And we think back on our 60, 70, 80 years, I think what we'll understand in that moment is that when we were trying to cancel out God for these 60, 70, 80 years because they were difficult for us, when we have the perspective of eternity, we would never really be making the argument for the problem of evil because it wouldn't really be a problem. It would be the things that were were painful in the sneeze of a life. And again, my wife committed suicide. I'm not sitting here going like, what is evil? What is pain? What is suffering? Like I've been steeped deep in it and trying to raise five kids by myself and understand which way's up and I'm struck with fear and and uh, fatigue and all these things that that accompanies such a place in life. And yet when people make this argument, I just go, knowing what I know about God and knowing my relationship with God, I would never ever make the argument that God somehow doesn't exist or he's not real because there is pain. Because God's redemptive qualities and his character so supersede It's it's what Paul writes about when he says, I have weighed and I have measured and I have considered that the present sufferings are not worth even comparing with the surpassing worth that's been found in Christ Jesus. For the things of this world are like rubbish compared to knowing him and being with him forever. And for the Christian who's placed their hope and faith in Jesus, when we look at the pain and the suffering and the evil of this world, it causes us to cry out for God to come and redeem faster, come back and have your way on earth as it is in heaven. But for the Christian, and this is sometimes you even kind of struggle with people who go, well, if God is so good, why is there so much evil in this world? Or it's like the Christians get that too. As a Christian, I know that there's things that that look so painful. I mean, I watched my wife wrestle through mental illness, and I watched the full effect of sin on a brain and sleeplessness, followed by post traumatic stress, followed by psychosis, followed by schizophrenia. I watched all those things play out firsthand. I I sat with her as she was wrestling through these things. I protected my kids against her. I protected her against herself. I like, I know, I get it, and a lot of Christians do. We're not in some kind of bubble of utopian happiness where we don't get it. It's that we too know suffering, but we also know the God who is bigger than it. And and we know the hope of salvation and the hope of eternity and the the truth of the incommensurable good that comes in knowing God and being with Him. And so when people say, I can't think of a good reason for it, I go, that's an absolutely perfect response to evil is, I don't see how God could do that. But you also must with open hands go, there is a large percentage of the world's population who have tasted and seen that regardless of the evil in this world, that our God is good and that he has really great reasons, biblically speaking, to allow evil in order to complete his ultimate good and that the evil that we, propens- that we continue to act out and that we continue to carry out And those are all a result of our own human sinfulness and brokenness, and not that God is in some way saying, I love the evil for its own sake. I love the death for its own sake. I I love when Jesus approaches the tomb of Lazarus in John chapter 11. It says, Jesus angers, he billows angrily against the death that he's in the presence of. He doesn't exult in it. He doesn't love it. He doesn't, it doesn't bring him joy to see suffering but to say that God can't use the suffering to bring people into the incommensurable good of knowing him, that God isn't sovereign over all things, that he is simultaneously loving while allowing evil. Perhaps there's a dial that's set that the most amount of people can know him. I don't think there's any stretch of logic that takes place anywhere, especially inside the confines of Christian theology that makes God's existence incompatible with the evil. For sure, maybe an emotional problem. I refuse to believe in a God that would allow it to happen for sure. But that's not really an argument. That's an emotional response. The logical problem, it's logically inconsistent. We made that really clear that that's only to say, if you believe that humans exist to be taken care of, like a, a supervisor would oversee children or a babysitter would, their primary goal is to make sure the kids are okay. That's not God's ultimate goal. His goal is glory and his goal is the salvation of mankind. And it's the carrying out of his will on planet earth. And so we're kind of stuck with this third one, which I think there can be good cases made to say, well, I think it's improbable that God has good reason for suffering. I I think I've presented a few. I think there's a lot other more logical ones. There's a man named Alvin Plantiga who writes a free will defense, and he talks about the good reasons for suffering. But I also know that a lot of us sit here and, and that's where we sit. We just we just don't think it's probable that there could be a God with so much suffering. And I want to affirm the fact that that's a absolutely appropriate response to the evil in this world is to think to yourself, it just doesn't make sense to me. I don't see why. I get that it's not logically inconsistent. I just don't like it. I just don't think it's probable that that's the case. Again, any of these arguments on their own does little to convince someone. But when you put all of them together— And they're brought into unity to make sense of all the different explanatory scope of this universe. The the pain that we see, the beauty that we see, the design that we see, the first cause of the universe, the beauty in the intricacies of creation. We need a worldview that we talked about week one. We need a worldview that answers all of those questions. And I really do believe in the marketplace of ideas that the God hypothesis that there is a God revealed through the Christian scriptures is the best possible fulfillment of all of those parts of the explanatory scope of the human condition. Science, biology, morality, sociology, even the history of beauty and the preponderance of wonder and awe and intricacy in creation, all points that the best explanation for all of that is to believe that there is a God who has made you who knows you, who has designed you, and then for whatever reason, out of his sheer goodness, grace, and love, stepped into the painting of the universe that he created and became man in the person of Jesus, who because of our evil and because of where we have tripped up morally and gone against him, that he took our place. He became the sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, even though he knew no sin, he became my sin so that when he was punished on the cross, he was punished in my place. That is the faith that I hold. And it's not a thoughtless faith. It's not a brainless faith. It's not an evidenceless faith. It's not a proofless faith. It is a tested and tried and studied and thought provoked. And I tell you what I do for fun. And this is the nerdiest thing about me. I watch and participate in debates about God's existence for fun. I've watched 60 of them over my life, each of them being two or three hours long, because I don't want to just hear what Christians think. I want to know what the most brilliant atheistic minds think, the most brilliant agnostic minds think, the most brilliant minds on planet earth that don't come to the same conclusion as mine. I still want to know what they think. And after 33 years of doing this and having gone through hell on earth in losing my wife and experiencing the suffering that comes along with that, I still sit here and I'm convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that the best explanation for all those things is that there is a god who is very real and who has intervened in our world revealed himself through scripture and wants a personal relationship with his people I hope this series has been helpful for you guys I'm I'm available at any time on social media or through email if you guys have more questions if I can give you more resources I can give you guys books that you can look up uh, I'm writing my own material too that you guys can use because I want to equip you because I really feel like being younger, I wasn't equipped in some of these things, and and I found myself wanting, and, and I found a kind of a hole in the market when it comes to these things. But any way that I can be a resource for you, dads out there that that are listening who are struggling through something personally, or your kids are struggling through something, please use me. Like I, I just feel like that's why God built me. I feel like He constructed me to preach His gospel, but then also to be a thinker and to ask hard questions and to wrestle through these things on a daily basis. And so, any way I can serve you. If you'd be willing to, to let me do that, I'd be I'd be very grateful. All you dads out there, love you guys, keep it up, and we'll talk to you guys next time.
0: Hey guys. Thanks again for listening to A Parent's Guide to Apologetics. This has been a fun little mini-series. Chris is going to come back and do some other little mini-series in the future, so don't worry. You'll still get to hear from him. You can also reach out to him by just emailing chris at dadtire.com. Again, he's happy to answer any questions that you might have and walk alongside of you in this area. Lastly, We try to equip men around the world to lead their family well. If that's something you believe in and you want to see this ministry grow, we would love to have you partner with us. You can do that by going to dadtire.com forward slash give. Thank you for your obedience to the Lord and your generosity and just helping us see more men equipped with the gospel and leading their families well. I love you guys. We'll see you next time.